Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you for being with us. Later, we're going to be talking to award-winning author and educator Thomas Glaive. But first, a bit of good news. There's been a ceasefire in the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. I don't choose to pick a side to support or oppose. I do support an effort to see to it that more lives on both sides are not lost. I also hope this is a first step towards some type of lasting peace. I'm not optimistic about that because we've seen this in the past, certainly in my lifetime, uh, where there have been some developments, there have been ceasefires, there have been talks, uh, but no lasting peace. Let's hope this time is different. Earlier this week, Three survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 testified before a House Judiciary Subcommittee hearing. For those who don't know, that massacre left a deep and lasting stain on American history. Mobs of white men destroyed a vibrant and prosperous section of the city of Tulsa in Oklahoma, killing an estimated 300 black citizens. The neighborhood was called Greenwood and contained a business district called the Black Wall Street. All this took place a hundred years ago this week. In addition to the dead, 8,000 people were left homeless, 23 churches were burned, and 1,200 homes were destroyed. And I'm sure those 23 churches were burned by people who call themselves Christian. Imagine for a moment being seven years old and seeing all this death and destruction happen before your very eyes. Viola Ford Fletcher, 107 years old, lived through the massacre, along with Hughes Van Ellis, her younger brother, and Leslie Benningfield Randall, who testified before the subcommittee remotely. Finally, they were able to speak their truth, and it's not pretty. The massacre was a deep wound, and its aftermath a further blow on that wound. No one was ever charged, tried or convicted for the carnage that was the Tulsa Race Massacre. The city of Tulsa buried this history for decades, generations. Modest ceremonies finally began in 1996. Further steps were taken as recently as 2015 in an effort to educate residents. A plot twist featuring the massacre was fictionalized in the HBO series Watchmen, as recently as 2019. Yet through all this, survivors received nothing. They feel a profound sense of unfairness as a result of this lack of compensation. Viola Ford Fletcher's words should resonate throughout this country. My name is Viola Ford Fletcher. I'm the daughter of Lucinda Ellis and John Wesley Ford of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm the sister of Hughes Van Ellis, who is also here today. I'm a survivor of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Two weeks ago, I celebrated my 107th birthday. <laughs> today, I'm visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life. I'm here seeking justice and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. On May 31st in 21, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood. Neighbors of Tulsa, the neighborhood 
I felt asleep in that night was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, community, heritage, and my family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors, and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Greenwood should have given me the chance to make, truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not. When my family was forced to leave Tulsa, I lost my chance of an education. I never finished school past the fourth grade. I have never made much money in my country. State and city took a lot from me. Despite this, I spent time supporting the war effort in the shipyards of California, but most of my life I was a domestic worker serving white families. I never made much money, but to this day I can barely afford my everyday needs. I don't believe America can adequately compensate these three survivors for the lives they could have led if white racists didn't lose their minds a hundred years ago. Yes, they are due reparation. There's no doubt about that. But their testimony sheds light on something much deeper in America's soul. If ever there was cancel culture, the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 is it. There are numerous other examples of the nation's rabidly racist behavior against blacks, Latinos, and Asians. Yet that history is largely absent from educational curriculum at any level. In fact, several states have passed legislation to bury the most sordid parts of U.S. history forever. If this isn't the real cancel culture and not the stuff the right complains about, I don't know what is. And this is just one of the racist outbursts that has largely been erased from American education. It seems the backlash against so-called critical race theory threatens to bury uncomfortable history forever. That's why the testimony of the three Tulsa race massacre survivors is so important. In an environment where the woman who developed the 1619 Project, a long-form examination of America's relationship to race, is denied tenure by the University of North Carolina, one understands very quickly how deeply ingrained the denial of racism is in the nation's DNA. If you have a chance, look at Viola Ford Fletcher's testimony. It's on C-SPAN and it may be on YouTube. It is heartbreaking. Here's a lady who went through all kinds of hell as a small child, as a seven-year-old, and 
to this day is bearing the scars of the Tulsa race massacre. Bearing the scars. And people want to act as though, well, that, that didn't really happen. That's not central to America's narrative. I submit, yes, it is. And again, these folks are seeking reparations. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, and this is after they get their money, for me, adequate reparations would be making sure that people in this country understand, whether they call it critical race theory or whatever they want to call it, but that people understand how racism weaved into the fabric of this country. It helped make the country prosperous through slavery, and it made sure that white supremacy reigned supreme throughout the country's history up through the mid-1960s. Now, again, and I've said this before, this is not about pillaring today's white people. It's not really about that. When I see a woman, a white woman, standing in front of a microphone almost in tears because she doesn't want her child to learn about critical race theory. And maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Maybe that's not the proper terminology. But I got to tell you, when I see a woman in tears over this, I understand the depth of miseducation in America. You know, uh, there was a book called The Miseducation of the Negro. And that is a given. But the miseducation of white people has never been fully explored. And when you have people, for example, in state legislatures in Louisiana and some of these other states who sit up and will stand you down that there was no particular racism that is central to the fabric of the country, you realize how miseducated so many of them are. This whole scenario should open a window into America's steadfast denial of its own racial history. Black folks aren't making this stuff up. Black people didn't construct the Tulsa race massacre or any of the others, Wilmington uh, and, and the ones that took place after World War I. Black people didn't make this up. This is history, but it's a history that people want to bury. And thank God for Viola Ford Fletcher and the other two survivors for bringing this to the nation's attention. What troubles me to an extent is that when they finished testifying, they got a standing ovation from the members of that subcommittee, some of whom, not all of whom, but some of whom would turn around and deny the centrality of what they spoke up. That is truly sad. Up next, Emily Wilder. You might not know her name, but maybe you should. Chris Cuomo and a baffling double standard. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. You may have read 
that CNN anchor Chris Cuomo recently admitted that he counseled his brother Andrew, the governor of New York, about how to respond to allegations of sexual misconduct leveled against him. This is a clear breach of journalistic standards, but he's not going to end up losing his job. A young journalist by the name of Emily Wilder was not so lucky. She'd been working at the Associated Press for only two weeks when she was canceled by right-wing ideologues. Seems while in college, Stanford to be exact, she belonged to Students for Justice in Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace. These groups opposed the occupation of Palestinian territory by the Israeli military. She also once said that Sheldon Adelson, a right-wing billionaire, looked like a naked mole rat. This was deemed anti-Semitic, even though Wilder herself is Jewish. Long story short, after a fusillade of vitriol from right-wing figures, including the Stanford College Republicans, she was unceremoniously fired. Now, in fairness, you know, in objectivity and balance, et cetera, et cetera, uh, the AP said that she was fired for something she wrote while she was at the AP. The problem is they don't say exactly what it is. And this is this kind of behavior, by the way, out of the Associated Press, you know, the gold standard of reportage in this country. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. When Emily Wilder asked precisely what it was that she had done, she got no answer from the AP, this bastion of journalistic integrity. Now, it looks as though Emily Wilder may not be out of work for too long. Yet the difference between Wilder and Chris Cuomo, who is working, has to do with sexism and relative power. Cuomo is a superstar, highly visible, top of the pile in the media ecosystem. And make no mistake, it is that very ecosystem, no matter what Emily Wilder wrote, that cost her her job. Should Cuomo have lost his job over an egregious lapse in judgment? Not for me to say, maybe, maybe not. Should Emily Wilder have lost her job over stuff she said and posted while still a college student, if that's what it turns out to be? And for all intents and purposes, if the AP won't say what it is she wrote when she worked for them, I gotta assume it has to have gone back to her college days. Should she have lost her job? Absolutely not. So who got canceled? Wilder and Nicole Hannah-Jones, who I mentioned earlier, who developed that 1619 curriculum only to be denied tenure at the University of North Carolina? Or Andrew Cuomo, who used cancel culture to define efforts to get him to resign and who used strategic advice from his brother an iconic media figure? And what does Emily Wilder's firing say about the AP's apparent caving to right-wing pressure? Hate to bring it up, but Colin Kaepernick remains canceled as well. I hate to keep coming back to cancel culture, but I didn't coin the phrase, and it appears as though now, finally, some people are pushing back on the right-wing definition of what cancel culture is. Colin Kaepernick is a victim of cancel culture. How else to explain why he hasn't played football since 2017? 
hasn't played, while Tim Tebow, by all accounts a mediocre player of little accomplishment, gets signed to an NFL contract as a tight end, not even as a quarterback. These injustices show how power on both sides of the political divide is wielded, and often not for good. And am I the only one who sees some level of bias against women in what happened to Emily Wilder and what happened to Nicole Hannah-Jones, both women, and in the case of Chris Cuomo, and I don't want to hold him out as an example because he's not, I don't think he's a bad person, but the idea that these women experienced a punishment well beyond what Chris Cuomo could ever have figured would happen to him makes me have to question whether there's some sexism or some anti-female bias at the core of the media ecosystem. I know it's true uh, as far as sports is concerned, and not just because of Kaepernick's situation. Women in sports experience this kind of quiet, subtle anti-female bias on a regular basis. But Kaepernick, who should have been hired, I mean, they hired a guy and he continues to play in the NFL who once threw four interceptions in a single half of football. And that person has a contract and is making a salary. And Colin Kaepernick, who knelt, knelt, to protest police brutality, remains out of work. It is absolutely shameful. And I think people ought to understand how Kaepernick's kneeling had spread worldwide. Before every English Premier League match in soccer, football, however you want to describe it, members of both teams, with one or two exceptions, all take a knee to stand against racism. Now, are people ready to say, well, I'm going to cancel my subscription to football or I'm not going to buy the football matches for my local team because they've chosen to do this? Of course they're not. But it appears as though Kaepernick is paying a unique price. Now, you know, don't shed any tears for him. He's doing a bunch of stuff including a lot of public service stuff during his time out of football. But the enduring question here is going to be, why is he out of football? Why is Emily Wilder out of a job? Why is Nicole Hannah-Jones not receiving tenure from the University of North Carolina? I know they offered her a five-year contract. It's not good enough. It's as simple as that. When we come back, my conversation with award-winning writer and educator, Thomas Glade. This is The Intersection. Our guest is Mr. Thomas Glade. He is a professor in the English department at Binghamton University. And he is a very, very prolific writer. His short story, The Final Inning, won the O. Henry Award. He was the second black gay writer after James Baldwin to win that award. He's also written 
in his fiction collection called Who's Song and Other Stories, Words for Our Now, Imagination and Descent, Our Caribbean, A Gathering of Lesbian and Gay Writing from the Antilles, The Torturer's Wife, and Among the Blood People, Politics and Flesh. Thank you so much for being with us, Thomas. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Mark. Now, you grew up in both the Bronx and Kingston, Jamaica. What were the differences in those two environments uh, that you perceived as, as a young person? I think principally two things I can think of off the bat. Language, number one, being exposed to African-American language and specifically African-American Northeast Bronx language, <laughs> which I really internalized very early on, as well as the language of Latinos, which who all of whom were um, our neighbors, we all lived in the same community in Baychester, a community still important to me. And um, the Latinos were mainly Puerto Ricans at that time. Dominicans hadn't yet begun to appear as much in that part of New York City. So you had the um, Spanish accented English of the Latinos, you had the African-American language with its vernacular influenced by the Deep South. And then, in, and then we had the Jamaican language at home and also the working class Italian-American kids with whom I went to primary school, right, in Catholic school, which was very, very different indeed. And a lot of that language sounded like what you would hear in a character like Archie Bunker of the time, right, uh, that inflection. Uh, but I think that in politically and racially, what was very interesting in terms of the difference between the two places was that in Jamaica, I was living in, although I didn't really acknowledge it as such at the time, I was living in a black majority country, mm -hmm. right? So that everything was black pretty much and everybody was black. And there were all kinds of uh, permutations of that with, for example, the Chinese Jamaican influence. And in our family, I have a Chinese Jamaican black godfather, for example. Mm -hmm. So. There was a way in which I think blackness was really um, fixed in my consciousness in a very, very specific set of ways in both in Kingston and in the countryside in Jamaica as well. It was only later I learned that in Jamaica, people of my color and my parents' color were considered brown because Jamaica does these skin color. Radiations. Right? right, but we're of African descent, obviously. So that was all really interesting because it provided me a kind of, I think, insider knowledge as somebody with a Caribbean background coming into the States. But then there were also sensibilities from the US and specifically my little part of the Bronx that I brought to the Caribbean experience that my cousins and others didn't have. That's interesting because um, that part of the Bronx up in Baychester was, was and I think still probably is, uh, a hotbed of Caribbean culture as well, no? Well, when we first moved there, my parents originally had, got, had come to the United States in the uh, 1950s, and then they um, moved to the South, what was not called the South Bronx at the time, but was, and then moved from the South Bronx when I was very young, when I was about four, to Baychester. And at that time, there weren't a lot of Caribbean people up there, no. When there was one Caribbean grocery where you could get goat meat and so on, right? <laughs> uh, one. So people gradually began to came. And of course, I think that was also very influenced by the fact that in those days, this was before airline deregulation, so that it was not really mm, financially feasible for a lot of people to travel back and forth the way that they do now and the way that they did in the later 20th century, right? Yeah, so people would come and stay. And many of the people who came in those years when my parents emigrated were middle-class Jamaicans, right? Okay. So there was, that was also very, very interesting because all of this is mixed up with the, the post-colonial reality that my parents experienced having grown up under the British crown in the colony 
right? They had British Jamaican passports when they were younger. And then coming into, uh, I, I grew up with the Jamaican flag, not the Union Jack. Because okay. by the time I was born, Jamaica was independent. Yeah, and it's interesting too, um, Baychester and that whole North Bronx area. Uh, and I think this is part of the reason why it may have uh, at, at a point drawn people from the Caribbean because there were uh, there was a, a tendency toward home ownership in that part of the Bronx that did not exist in, even in the South Bronx or in other parts of the city. Uh, and I think that, that that did play a role because people, uh, I think at that point, and this was also true of African-Americans, uh, there were large numbers of, of people who, uh, who were cops and others who had gotten to a certain point in their lives and then were able to make that jump to home ownership. So there was a commonality there. Yes, there was. And this also existed in Queens and Brooklyn. Yes. The difference I think being from my parents that they wanted, I remember distinctly to live in a one fair zone. So where they could just go to a subway. So we had friends, for example, family friends who lived out in Queens and some who lived in Brooklyn. My mother would always say Brooklyn was a foreign country. Because <laughs> to get out there, you had to go through all these changes. But they didn't want to be dealing with buses and um, uh, trains and so on and so forth, right? Yeah, definitely. When did, uh, Thomas, when did writing become a passion for you? A passion, uh, a passion. Um, a passion. I, I'm trying to think of how to art, uh, articulate that because I think that um, my father had been a journalist in Jamaica and his uh, middle brother had also been a journalist. And my father was always talking to me about the importance of reading and they read to me a lot, my parents did, etc. And I think that it, it was just something that I knew I wanted to do as a child, but I didn't call it writing. It was just that thing that I wanted to do. And so I did it. I started very young doing it. Mm -hmm. And it was later, I think, I suppose to really answer your question, maybe hmm, hmm, when I was in high school, I realized that this was really what I wanted to do. And that actually people did things like write books, right? Before yeah. I thought of it as just doing it. And, and I realized that that was the thing that I really wanted to do. Were you, were you encouraged by your teachers to do it? Yes, you know, I actually was. I actually say this now answering you with a little bit of surprise because I'm taking into account, of course, the realities of racism that existed. I had a lot of white teachers. In fact, I had only white teachers in primary school and high school in New York. But nonetheless, some of the nuns, I went to Catholic school and primary school and they were very encouraging. And I also was, I, I did well with spelling bees. So I represented the school, the primary school and spelling bees and so on. Mm -hmm. And I suppose maybe I was lucky that I encountered nuns, young nuns in some cases who were very encouraging and some white lay teachers also who were very encouraging. In high school, I think I can definitely say my English teachers always were very encouraging as well. And you know, we don't know what sorts of microaggressions may have occurred that I wasn't necessarily aware of or that I did actually internalize in terms of, oh, you really can't do this or whatever, whatever. But I think again, that having the background of a black majority society really helped. And in fact, one of my other godparents is a well-known Jamaican novelist. He passed away, um, Victor Stafford Reed. And so he was a good friends with my father. And maybe that on some subconscious level also made things possible for me imaginatively, you know? Oh yeah, because it's interesting you say that. Um, I was considered, you know, I, I took advanced, believe it or not, advanced place, uh, placement classes when I was in junior high school. And I'll never forget going to a guidance counselor who despite the fact I was in an advanced placement class and had tested very well, 
said to me, you need to learn how to do something with your hands. And I was a complete klutz. You know, I, I was not uh, handy or whatever. And he wanted to get me into the technical high school in the town where we lived, where, you know, and, and the one person that stopped him was my mother, because my mother was just like, no, he's not going to do that. And there was this whole notion in those days when I was coming up, and I'm a little older than you, I think, uh, that, that, you know, Black people uh, were best off if they learned something. You know, my father was a postal clerk, and he worked in the post office for 40 years. And that was, for his generation, the best a Black person could hope for. And I think that there was still a little residual part of that that had a guidance counselor say to me, well, you need to learn to do something with your hands. So I, I find it interesting. You were encouraged. You had people around you uh, who, who said, hey, you know. Well, let me qualify that, though, too, because I actually took advanced placement English in uh, high school. I, I was really wanting, I wanted very much to take that, that to get into that, that sequence of classes. And I did at last. And I remember the guidance counselor saying to me, I, you know, you, how you have the grading uh, sequence. Yeah, of, yeah one, two, three, four, five, right? So I really wanted to get a five on the exam and I was bugging him almost every week. And, um, and he was a white man and he said, oh, don't worry, you'll get a four, right? And I remember <laughs> thinking, well, I, I knew that something wasn't right and what in the way he said that and the fact that he said it. And then I did get a five and I thought, well, okay, this is teaching me something. I'll think about it in years to come. But also going back to the colonial experience that my parents had, my mother was, um, told, uh, and I, I, the story is a little cloudy because it came down to me, handed down to me by other people, but mm. she was told growing up during the colonial era by some authorities who decided which children went to which school that she would do better with her hands, right? Whereas her sister who maybe demonstrated more verbal skill at that time was, uh, went to an elite school in Jamaica. And that was also very interesting given the fact that, my, that her sister was darker skinned and my mother was lighter skinned. So that's actually really interesting. Yeah, it is. but I think that my mother was always very harmed and wounded by that. So this happened. It happened in my family as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. How much homophobia did you experience as a young person in the Bronx and in Jamaica? Now, Jamaica, uh, for those in the audience that don't know, uh, had an infamous reputation for being homophobic. Uh, and, and I'm wondering how much of that you experienced both in the Bronx which was no hotbed of, of enlightenment either, uh, but in, in Jamaica in particular. Well, in the Bronx, I experienced a great deal. And I think that in some ways, the homophobia that I experienced from my fellow <laughs> young friends um, who were um, a lot of African-American young men, my own age, actually saved me from some of the, the trouble that they got into uh, eventually with young women and doing things they shouldn't have been doing because I was not considered a, a real enough man by their standards to really hang out with. So they tolerated me, but they never really accepted me. So I was always on the margins. So one who's on the margins finds other things to do. Uh, but it was quite, there was a lot of it. And there was a lot of it from the white working class kids as well in primary school, as well as racism. In Jamaica, I didn't experience it overtly as a young person until I was probably in my twenties. And I began to know, well, I knew by then that I was gay. But when I was younger, I didn't experience it much. It was the silence that was more destructive because really? again, this was a Jamaican middle-class environment and you wouldn't talk about those things. Uh, it was considered unseemly to yeah. talk about them in middle-class context. So my, my family would never have used those very vituperative words like batty man, which 
is a, a profanity in Jamaica, right? You don't print it in the newspaper. Yeah. Or any of these other words, those would have been associated with people of a different social class. And that was the one thing that the Jamaican brown middle class wanted to separate itself from, right? So they would behave very much like British people. They would not speak about it and pretend that it didn't exist. Did those words, once you realized you were gay and came out, did, did those kinds of words, which were very prominent, for example, in dance hall music and that sort of, did that stuff hurt you? Uh, well, it hurt me by distance, yes. I mean, in the, in the, in the, in the overlay of the society, yes. It, those words weren't used against me very much personally, mm -hmm. but the attitudes were. As I got older, I mean, there are very few people in my family today who actually maintain contact with me, partly because of these different really? Yes, yes, right? Because it's, it's, you remember that in Jamaica, homo, homosexuality, even though things have changed a great deal, right? homosexuality is still very associated with pedophilia, pedophilia. And the other thing that's very interesting about Jamaican homophobia, even now, right, is that we, we, we've said for a long time in Jamaica that if a black man, as in dark-skinned man, right, um, were to come out, that would make all the difference because that would seem like an impossibility, right? Because that is the true man, the true Jamaican, the true black man, right? Uh, people who are brown, like yourself and myself, mm -hmm. in the Jamaican definition, well, what do you expect? Because they're mixed with white, et cetera, et cetera. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is how, right? So, and in, interestingly, you know, this is one of the reasons why when African-Americans, um, when, when African-American homosexuality is viewed by Jamaicans, some Jamaicans say, yeah, man, but you know, they have white people in them and everything. So, you know, they're corrupted. It's interesting. I, I, I won't name the reggae artist that I interviewed once who defended his homophobia. And, and actually, it was more than one, uh, but defended it by use of their religion. Now, these were not particularly religious people, okay? Uh, but when it came to homosexuality, that was like their shield. Well, you know, I don't have anything against uh, gay people per se but my religion tells me it's sinful. My religion tells me this, that, and the other. Did you experience any of that? Well, yes, from cousins I did definitely. But again, I think that social class comes to bear on this and who goes to what church because uh, many, this is changing a bit, right? But many J Jamaican middle-class people tend to go to the Anglican church, which is what followed the Anglican church, which is what my parents followed. So my parents were actually Protestants. I was raised a Catholic mm -hmm. by virtue of being in the US, right? But, um, but people who are many of the poor people of Jamaica, which is the majority population of the country, uh, uh, practice what we call charismatic Christianity. So some of the, the like- oh, uh, Pentecostal and that sort of thing. Yes, exactly. Bocamania, Baptist, et cetera. And those religions have, a, and Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists, they're very, very fundamentalist. And those religions have a really powerful zero tolerance attitude toward homosexuality. Again, because they, they define it with pedophilia and um, they, they just, they, they brook no, movement into that area. Whereas Anglicans can be a bit more, it's this sort of British stiff, stiff upper lip. Attitude. Yeah, but was it difficult for you to make the transition from writing to teaching? Was that a difficult thing for you? No, I haven't really made a transition, I think, because I'm still doing writing, but I, I teaching, um, oh, well, in, in terms of beginning to teach, is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, 
not teaching itself per se, but maybe being in a university, which is a very different thing, I think, from teaching. Uh, living in the university and dealing with the politics and the structure and the social reality of a university is very different because of everything that comes to bear upon, in this case, the United States, politically, racially, historically, and otherwise, comes to bear upon the university as a microcosm of the society. Yes. So structural racism, all the prejudices with which we live are brought to bear upon that institution. So in that sense, I would say, yes, to some degree, yes. You know, it's interesting, you know, there's a whole big controversy about that lady who was working for the New York Times who was denied tenure at uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I, I'm not sure the university administration was prepared for the backlash they got from that. Um, and I'm still not really clear about what their problem was. They offered her a five-year contract, but I still don't know why they wouldn't have offered her tenure. She, she certainly had the chops for it. Is that what you mean when you talk about university politics? Well, that too, yes, certainly adjudication and governance, right? And the decisions that are made about people's careers, but also in terms of the representation of faculty of color in mm -hmm. largely white professoriate bodies so that we really need many more people of color and also people of color with the people of color with helpful politics so that people of color can be company people. I, I use the term company man, right? <laughs> uh, right. So people of color can be the, and, and we are dealing with a great many seductions in the university administration because tenure itself is a seduction because it provides one a life of comfort and security because then you cannot be fired from your job, right? So it's, it becomes easier to toe the party line, if you will, and not to make noise. But in my university in particular, which has many working class people and people from immigrant families and first time attendees, right, of university. Issues come up all the time about representation and poverty and lack of resources. Um, and this is even to a greater degree uh, the case in the CUNY system. So yeah. it's important to keep one's eye on the, on the climate and particularly in this post, so-called post-Trump era that the United States is experiencing, the white supremacy, the, the, re, the resurgence of white supremacy, or the, the greater visibility of white supremacy, right? I think we really need to keep our eyes on what's going on. What's going on? No, it's interesting. Um, I have been told at least three times during my career working in radio uh, by people who I assume were well-meaning. Uh, and they would pull me aside and say, you know, if you just were a conservative, <laughs> you could make a really good living right and, you know just just change your politics just a little bit and you know my family so you know how impossible that would have been exactly. uh, for anybody in my family to change our political outlook just to make money um but i, I wonder too you were involved when you were in jamaica with uh and, and this is as an adult obviously uh would really kind of pushing back on a formal level against homophobia. You founded an organization, no? I co-founded, co uh, yeah. yes, the Jamaica Forum for Lesbians, All Sexuals, and Gays in 1998, yes. Did it make progress? Was it sufficient progress from, from where you were sitting? Oh, absolutely. I think JFLAG still exists and we have changed. I say we, I'm not working with them anymore formally uh, yeah. or even informally, but I support them still. But, oh, absolutely. I mean, JFLAG has approached Jamaican parliament to change the laws, the 18th century buggery, so-called buggery law and the Offenses Against the Person Act. One of my relatives was arrested under one of these laws for really? gross indecency, yes, which is, an, which is a law from the time 
uh, it was used against Oscar Wilde, right? So um, these, all of these laws have to be looked at. And again, here's the colonial legacy of the British, right? Jamaica had flogging on the books legally until 1998, oh my God. the late 20th century. This is again from the British. So no, J flag has absolutely made inroads against this. And I think that the, with the advent of technology and the proliferation of the internet uh, in Jamaica as well, right? Which again is a country, developing country, a so-called third world country dealing with um, in unequal distribution of resources, right? Yeah. It has helped enormously for everybody. I think that people have just become more enlightened, especially younger people, right? And younger people eventually become older people. Yes, definitely. No, believe me, some of the stuff I did as a kid, I'd be, I'd be shocked at this age. Um, how has lockdown uh, and, and COVID-19 affected your ability to teach and perhaps the mindset of the students you teach? Well, um, lockdown and, and COVID-19. And well, last fall I was teaching by Zoom. Uh, so I was teaching from England back to Binghamton and I taught a literature course and I was teaching novels that dealt with plagues actually. And that was very interesting because I wouldn't necessarily have done that before. These were some of, some of these books I'd read before, years before, like Camus, The Plague and other things. And so I said to the students, here we are in the midst of a plague, reading books about plagues. So this teaches us something, I think. I think that um, it's made me realize that there's a way to be more green and that uh, also this may be very well the way of the future. I think it's been very humbling to be in this situation that the, the entire world is grappling with, right? And to think about where, um, where we're going to go with this because too many people have died, right? I mean, people have died all in all kinds of numbers everywhere. So the, the, all that death and suffering has been on my mind a great deal uh, while I've continued to teach. The students, I think, have been um, really shell-shocked by um, a lot of this, this global catastrophe because it's unquestionably dramatic and it's not a film and it's not a disaster film and it's not a Netflix series, this is real life. And I think that in particular, they're grappling with what maybe many Americans and Westerners are grappling with, which is don't take away our toys, right? Don't take away our privilege. You can't tell us what to do. You can't tell us to wear masks, et cetera. They're grappling with all of that, whether or not they agree with it, right? Mm -hmm. And realizing that in the 21st century, the world, including the Western world largely, is not accustomed to infectious diseases being deadly. It was AIDS didn't affect the entire world in the same way. No, you're right. I mean, this uh, this virus has been so unpredictable uh, where you have countries and places even inside America uh, where the numbers at first were very low uh, and everybody, all the politicians, as is their habit, you know, were busy patting themselves on the back and suddenly those numbers started spiking. And you had other situations where people took a very laissez-faire attitude toward the virus and it didn't turn out to be as bad as everybody predicted. It's been a wildly, wildly unpredictable situation. But I, I wanted to oh, ask you- well, Let me add some, sorry, really quickly to that. Sorry, uh, don't lead you from the thought part, but it's to say really quickly that also the other thing for younger people is that the world is not guaranteed anymore. It, it never was guaranteed, right? That was always an illusion. But now it's really not guaranteed because of the future, because of the economy, the global economy, and how this has been affected and what this means for people's livelihoods as they leave college university, even as they leave high school, right? And what it means for their parents, 
and so on and so forth. So this generation of young people who are presently in university and in high school are gonna be profoundly affected in their future careers by this pandemic and it's halting of their progress. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. Uh, I, I'm wondering too, in terms of your own work, what inspires you? You say you're still writing. What excites you to write? Are there different topics, different things that come into your head? What is your process like? Well, uh, many things inspire me. I think I don't know if I really believe in inspiration itself is the most important thing. I think that I really believe that working is the most important thing because work is work. Work is actually discipline. So it's getting up every day and doing the work, just like sweeping and washing dishes and doing laundry. It's work and it's important. And I think that I've been so infuriated by so many things that have happened during the last five years mm. that I actually found that it was impossible to really maintain the discipline that I wanted to because I felt as though every five minutes I wanted to write something new about some other outrage. So I've tried to channel some of that outrage into uh, maybe uh, an avenue of production that is possible to talk about some of the things that I experience as someone in England who is dealing with my own lineage here, right? Because I have an ancestry actually in England as well as in the Caribbean, but also as somebody who's a US citizen and is responding to US behavior and what's happening in the United States right now. So there's an enormous amount and this is nonfiction and fiction, right? So I feel as though there's an incredible amount to actually do. And people I know have said to me, yes, we really have to do this work, it's urgent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Um, if I went back 10 years and somebody had told me what the last five years would have been like, I'd have laughed in their face. I'd have never thought that the American public would end up, and not all the American public, obviously, but a good chunk of the American public would end up revisiting racist attitudes that I thought had, you know, I thought people had marched and people had died to get rid of all that. And yet it persists, yet it's still here. Do you get that sense? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, oh, I, I think that it was just, the New York Times at one point had a remarkable article titled uh, The Resentment That Never Sleeps. And it was all about white grievance, white rage, white fury, and Trump having embodied that and having represented that to the point that people instantly identified with him, plus the coded language embodied in that phrase, make America great again, which means so many things, mm -hmm. principally, which I think it is make America white again, right? So all of this rage that was sleeping or at least napping came to, um, came to bear. And with the double term of Barack Obama, I mean, it's very complicated because many Trump supporters voted for Barack Obama twice. But I think that many, many people who would be inclined toward racism, which they can't even help, I think sometimes, because it's so bred into people in the United States and elsewhere, including Britain. I think that many of those people were deeply unseated, deeply troubled, deeply horrified actually by Barack Obama's popularity, his ascendancy, and not only his, but the fact that there was a black family living in the White House. So that it wasn't just Barack, it was also his wife and his two daughters, right? And what that meant for, what they perceive to be the US nation, all right? So that as white, um, as white control has, has in some ways diminished, white supremacy increases. That's a, that's a very, very important point. 
Thomas, I want to thank you so much uh, uh, for talking to me. This has been an extremely enlightening time. And, and again, I thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Rapper. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.